we're going to look at one of, I think, one of the most profound portions of what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount. But you know the preacher always says that about whatever message he's about to preach. You know that. But I think this is where Jesus really separates out what he came to do for us, what he's about here. This profound message by Jesus on the, on the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to give us three things here, three responsibilities, and I'm going to call them uh, his role, Jesus's role. Uh, I'm going to say it's the role of the law in our life, and, and that gets confused very often. And then, the, then our Christian response. How do we respond to something like this? Because there always needs to be a response. This, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. This evokes a picture here, a picture of, oh, I'm supposed to do this because I want you to think I'm a good person, or I want to do this because that's the kind of picture it, it gives us. And immediately, those Hebrews sitting on that mountain, listening to Jesus preach this message, okay, are going to get a picture. They're, they're going to hone in on this picture, and this picture is of the self-righteous Pharisee. The guy who's over there saying, I'm, I'm good, I'm okay. He's patting himself on the back, and, and he thinks he's the best thing since, well, sliced bread. He thinks he's good. The Hebrew, they are listening to what Jesus says, is thinking about that. He, he's the Pharisee that's described in Luke 18 that's going into the temple to pray, to confess. And what does he confess? I am really good. Listen to this. He says this, I fast twice a week. I go to Grace Church twice on Sunday. I pay tithes. I let everybody see me putting my envelope in the... That's what this Pharisee is... Picture is get, they're, they're getting. Is this picture of this Pharisee. That's, a, a, that's a, a warning. And we're going to get to that warning at the end, what that actually means. You see, he announced... His good deeds to all. That's what the Pharisee does. He wants those in his hearing to know he's a good person. I go to church. I pray. I I always throw this in there. They dust their Bible off as they're coming across Roscoe Boulevard. Look at me. Look at me. I am something. Wednesday night, I was teaching on self-esteem. That's where he's at. He's got plenty of self-esteem. This guy doesn't need any more. His self-righteousness is screaming. And that's what's in the mind of those Hebrews that are listening to Jesus on the mountain. That's what they're thinking is supposed to happen. But Jesus here is wanting to clarify. He's wanting to define for his hearers what he actually means. When he says this, that, you may, good, that you're, you may see your good works, Jesus is not speaking of displaying your good works. No, he's not. He's wanting you to display the good works that God has produced in your heart. It's about if you want to change, you've you got to change your heart. You've got to be in harmony with God and what he says about your heart. And in Mark chapter 7, it says it's wicked. It's desperately wicked. 
And he wants you to get an idea. That's where you are. The good works only happen as the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in a person. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what's produced there. But it's not by you. It's by God. It's by God. You see, we as Christians are to respond in obedience to what Jesus has to say. You see, folks, it's not a matter of showing up for church. It's not a matter of putting a giving envelope in the offering. It's not a matter of being seen at Bible study. Oh, I got to go to the Bible study again. None of those things. Jesus is going to explain the purpose of his coming here. And the purpose of his coming here was to save your rotten souls. Excuse me. Save my rotten soul as well. That's why he came. But are we truly saved? Are we truly saved? Or is this all a show? I do these things because that helps me be a Christian. The next words and and then the examples that Jesus is going to give, and we're never going to get to the examples. That'll come later. Is going to really set for our hearts a biblical theology of of how we should live. The things that Jesus is, is about to say defines his role and the role of the law, and the Christian's response to that law. Beloved, the explanation of these roles will establish, I think, biblical Christianity and the three responsibilities that we have. Read the passage, and then I'm going to give you the outline, and you go from there. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Jesus starts off this way. Do you not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets... I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You can even see he's answered here in verse 20 what was said in verse 16. It's not just the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It goes beyond that. Jesus wants perfection. Do you think mankind can give him perfection? We're dreadfully far from that. But here is the outline. Christ's role we see in verse 17, the law's role in verse 18, and then the Christian's role in verses 19 and 20. So the first role or responsibility that is to be established is the role of Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 5, and I'm sorry, in, in chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I love this. Jesus says, I came. He decided to come. None of you decided to come into this world. You don't do that. It just happens. I don't know how, but it just happens. I came into this world. It has a certain ring to it. Jesus knew from the start 
He had purpose. There was a purpose. There was a reason for his coming into the world. Here was God declaring his entrance into the world. It was planned, and he chose to come at this specific juncture in history. He could have come at another time, but he chose this specific juncture of history. It was not a fluke. It was a strategy. It was a plan. And it was a plan from the beginning. As it says in the scriptures, in the fullness of time. Jesus, when he was, uh, you remember the story, he was 12 years old and he's in the temple. And he's there and he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, to to the temple teachers and all of that. And he says, at 12 years old, I'm here about my father's business. And he's telling them why he's here. Now, if you had a 12-year-old in your family tell you why they're here, you would call them precocious or you'd laugh at them or, you know, you'll grow up one day and figure it out and, and that kind of thing. That's, that's what we'd probably say to somebody like that. But Jesus actually knew. Jesus actually could see what he was here for. I, I got to tell you, I, I wished I had a picture of that sitting in a synagogue and seeing this 12-year-old teach. I love kids. But he wasn't. He was already mature in his heart and his mind. Jesus came from God and was God. When Jesus says he came, he knew what his mission was. And he took up that mission. That's why when the parents are going back to Nazareth and they can't find their son, they go, where is he? He's about his father's business. But you see, Jesus came as the redeemer of this world. He was not here to abolish the law. Basically, he's even saying, you need to live the law. Uh, So he says this, that he's not going to abolish it, but uh, he wants to establish um, the Jew. And how does he do that? With law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was a common way to refer to the Old Testament. So do that. that's in the Old Testament. You don't need to do that anymore. Just tell them that the law is still alive today. He was not here to abolish the law. Jesus said it's still alive. Now, there are a number of interpretations as to what this meant. Let me give them all to you. I want to be fair to each and every one of them. Some believe Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament by obeying its commands perfectly, which he did. Some believe that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets by explaining the Old Testament which God's origin, with God's original meaning, which he did. And then some believe that Jesus was saying that he himself was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, which he was. As a matter of fact, let's look at a few of those prophecies that he mentions himself. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, 23. It says this, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now there's also another one there, 2.15. There is another passage there. Uh, He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill. Notice that word keeps being brought up, fulfill. He's come to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I I called my son. 
Then in verse 17, there's another. It's, I mean, it's chock full. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Over and over again, you see that Jesus is fulfilling what was spoken by the uh, Old Testament prophets and um, the Old Testament law. Verse 23 is another one. And came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, fulfillment of all of those things that were said previously. There's one more that I want to bring to your attention, and that's in chapter 4, verse 14, where it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And so you can see, this was written to fulfill. Fulfill what was written, fulfill what was said. And Jesus did that. That is one of the reasons he came. Jesus was saying that he came to fulfill, and I want to add this to it, okay? He's clarifying God's original meaning. That's what he's doing. He's clarifying God's original meaning. The Jew, for the most part, missed the Old Testament meaning of why the Messiah came. Look at that that chapter there, there, 15 through 17. Let's read that. It says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people were sitting in darkness, saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death upon them, a light dawned. Here, he's even telling them, this is the light. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent. That's what Jesus came for, to tell us to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We don't know when that is actually going to be initiated. I think it's going to be soon. I don't think the world can continue to go on and on and on like it is without him returning. But he came to tell us we needed to repent. We needed to see our sin for what it was, what it caused, the pain that it causes He came to show man can live, though, at the same time, the holy person. He lived as a holy person. You say, well, that that was Jesus, God. No, he did that as a human being. He made those choices and decisions. He he lived fully as a man. He was 100% God, 100% man. So he had to do that as a human being. Jesus came to bring clarity in the fulfillment of what was said in the Old Testament and the prophets. You see, the rabbis, the teachers of the law, kept adding things to it. They they kept making it more difficult. As a matter of fact, Calvin said this, Jesus restored it, that is the law, to its integrity by maintaining and purifying it when obscured by the falsehood and defiled by the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, I uh, grew up in New York City. My first full-time job was downtown New York. I worked at a Jewish textile company. I mean, I was the only um, Goim, okay? They called me, they called me names, Tolkien Goim. That's what they called me. And, and I, I, I had a great time. These, I, mean, I tell you, these are fabulous people. But the way some of them who were very strict and were listening to the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, they had to leave early on Friday. They could, if they got in their elevator when the sun had already gone down, they can't touch the knobs. They can't put press... So one lady's living in a building that's 10 stories high. She's on the 10th floor, and she gets in the elevator, and it's automatic. It stops at every floor. Can you imagine? 
She, she takes over half an hour to get up to the top floor. <laughs> Folks, that's living, that's not in the Bible. Matter of fact, yesterday I had some folks come up to me and, and they were asking me about some things about church and, and what kind of clothes you wear to church and all of that kind of stuff. I said, there's no strictness, you know, just be decently dressed. I said, but there's no, no strictness to that. But that's what they did. They kept adding to it. That's not in the Bible. That's not in the Old Testament. There are two terms that are used in this verse by Jesus to define the role clearly. First, he didn't come to abolish, but he came to fulfill. Those are the two words. They're, they're antithetical. They're, they're opposite of one another. And this is in regards to the law. He did not want to put the law and abolish the law, get rid of it in any way. He did not come to abrogate the law. He did not come to abolish the law. No, Jesus came to fulfill it. The Pharisees and scribes accused Jesus how many times? Of violating the law. You, you've seen the, the violation that, that uh, supposedly Jesus did, you know, and, and this is what they were accusing him of, the laws that they made, not the laws that God made. They were always upset at Jesus. Jesus was supposedly violating the law, but what Jesus violated was what the scribes and the Pharisees had added to the law. More to it than was really there. Matthew chapter 23. Why don't we go take a look at that for just a little bit? Matthew 23 <clears throat> uh, speaks to the warning that they're going to receive okay, the woes that are going to come upon them. And let's look at verse 13. It says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. (laughs) There's a warning here. Hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They make it difficult, more more things upon it. I think there was one particular law that you couldn't take more than a thimble uh, of wine, okay, and bring it to your table because then you are working. Oh, wait, you've got to be kidding me. Not that you should have wine, folks, but that means that they can't have water either. It, it, it's just the same kind of, of uh, um, microscopic looking at people to perform those kinds of duties rather than have a heart change. For the man who's treating his wife unkindly, for the wife who's not listening to her husband and working together with him, all of those kinds of things. They didn't bother with that. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel from on the sea and land to make one proselyte, he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold on the temple is obligated. So listen to what he's he's doing. He's taking something on the temple that has nothing to do with you. That has absolutely nothing to do with the, the, the Hebrew. But that's what they do. They add these things. Let's drop down to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provision of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. That's what God calls you to. 
justice and mercy and faithfulness, to love your brother, to care for them. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, and inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Folks, do you hear the warning here? It's about what's going on in the inside. Jesus came to tell them, you need to change the inside. It's not about the outside. It doesn't matter all of those things on the outside to make yourself look better. So, oh, so-and-so is, must be a Christian. You know, they, they go to church on Sunday. That doesn't make you a Christian. Because if going to church on Sunday made you a Christian, the old song says, going to McDonald's would make you a hamburger. <laughs> I, that's a song. I, I just quoted uh, Green on that. Here we appear, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? That's what he's calling them. And these are the leaders of the, what we would call the church, but it's the, it's the Old Testament synagogue. It's the Old Testament synagogue. Go back with me to the beginning of chapter 23. I want you to see this. Starting in verse 2, it says, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They wanted to be the leader. I want to be recognized at that. Therefore, all that they tell you to do, observe, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and they do not do them. That's why yesterday when I was speaking to this young lady, I said, if they're focused so much on the outward appearance, it means they're missing something on the inside. It was just like the Lord just handed this to me yesterday. And, and I said, this is what they need to do your heart. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Yeah, they go and live their way any way they want. They don't really care. They're taking care of the outside. In the Sermon on the Mount, let's go back there, this wonderful message from Jesus to the people. He is letting them know his intention. The purpose is to reaffirm the law and at the same time bring the law to its intended purpose. He wants to reaffirm the law. And I I hope you get that. There's so many folks who want to do away with the law today. We'll try to explain that as best we can in the short amount of time we have. Beloved, the law and the prophets point to Jesus. The law and the prophets point to salvation in Jesus Christ. I want to summarize this with a quote from Sinclair Ferguson. If you have read Sinclair Ferguson, he's extremely clear. At least I hope this is clear for you. He says this, quote, The law does three things. It expresses the character of God and his will for man's life. Further, it teaches us the true character of man. God's intention for man in, is that he live in accordance with the law of the Lord. And third, The law teaches us the character of salvation. You have the character of God because the Holy Spirit lives in you. You could be perfect and undefiled because the Holy Spirit lives in you. You have the character of man at the same time, sin-filled and in need of God all the time. 
you have the law that teaches of the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is very clear from the lips of our Savior here, he did not come to do away with the law. He did not come to abrogate the law. He came to fulfill it. Now let's look at the role of the law. This is point number two here, the role of the law. The law was given for a reason. It was to instruct just as a teacher instructs to teach, just as a teacher is instructing. The teacher is trying to convince the student of a particular view. The law was trying to convince the Hebrew that this is what they should be believing. The teacher wants the student to believe what he is teaching and convince them to follow that particular instruction. This is the role of the law. It's to convince. Convince the student. But in this case, the individual, what it's there for. And what is it supposed to teach the individual? Their need of salvation. That's exactly what the law is supposed to be teaching them. Their need of salvation. Not the need of making more human laws. That is the role of the law, to convince the student. Here's where the confusion comes in. And there's lots of this that goes on in the church today. For those who are Christians, this is where it comes in. Some believe that they are no longer under the law, but only under grace. That's all they have to worry about. I just have to worry about grace. It's all about grace. But this passage is very clear. Look at verse uh, 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, has they passed away yet? I maybe have missed it. Okay. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Wow. Pretty clear. It seems clear to me that those who are hollering grace, and there are churches out there that are hollering grace very loudly, they don't want to live under the law. The law tells them how to live, what to do, what they can't do, what they should do. Those folks hollering grace aren't reading their Bibles, at least not properly. I call them, okay, and I'm not a name caller, antinomians, but that's exactly what they are. It's the explanation. They're anti the law. They're against the law. They don't want the law. And when I see something like that, okay, and I'm going to say this because I've seen even some of my friends go this way, there's some kind of sin in that person's life that they're trying to make an excuse for. That's the sadness that's in my heart. They're trying to make an excuse for, oh, it's grace. Don't worry about grace. It's grace. The antinomians have fallen into the belief that God forgives everything. So let's eat, drink, Be merry. Do whatever we want. It no longer matters. Go ahead. Do whatever you want. I want to give you a scenario, and this is something that actually happened. Counseled with a couple years ago here at Grace Community Church. They had a rocky marriage. It started to come back. We started to get some of the rocks out of it and started to become pebbles, and then we started to get some, you know, cement in there. (laughs) And uh, not in their head, but on on their foundation. (laughs) They decided to move to another state. Pastor, my shepherding responsibilities are, you got to find a good church to go to. 
And I, they told me what city they're going to, and they, they picked out a church. I don't know what church it was, but this church had gone overabundant in grace. When this man, who had this troubled marriage, went to the pastor and spoke to him, he, he was looking for help for the pastor to get involved in his life. His, his marriage was troubling to him. And the pastor said this, if you, and I'm, I'm quoting, by the way, if you cannot get along, divorce. God will forgive you and you will be happier. I, I, I mean, I, I come unglued at things like that. He, he just went against Scripture completely, thoroughly. That's not what Scripture says. It's not what Scripture says. This man, unfortunately, listened to him. Three months after he gets his divorce, he calls me up from the Midwest somewhere, and he's crying on the phone. He can hardly get a word out. I mean, he was a friend. He was in this class, and he's crying his head, head off. Well, actually, Faith Builder's not anchored. He called, and, and he's just pouring out his heart. He said, I realized I've done the wrong thing. He never called me in between, by the way, because I would have given him my opinion and some scripture. The pastor said, oh, don't worry about it. Just make yourself happy. By the way, this world is not about making you happy. It's about making you holy. That's the idea, is to make you holy. Paul says in Romans 6, 1 and 2, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And he says these last words, the most negative words you can possibly say and never be. If he was writing a text, it would be in bold letters, okay, capitalized, all of that kind of stuff, so that you could hear. That is not to happen. You see, the changing of Scripture by that pastor, and he did change Scripture, can lead to all kinds of trouble and even to heresy. And I believe that it's what it led to in this person's life. Jesus was warning the crowd there, those Hebrews on that hill, they were not to go back to the Old Testament and change anything. Take it for what God gave you already. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, another hero of mine, said this, What is grace? It is that marvelous gift of God, which having delivered a man from the curse of the law, enables him to keep it. See, that's what the grace is for. It brings you to God, and then it enables righteous, was righteous, for he kept the law perfectly. Grace is that which brings me to love God, and if I love God, I long to keep his commandments. That's what should happen. We come to know God, we come to love God, we want to follow his commandments. Grace is not that which allows us to live any way that we want to. That's not what grace does. Grace is a gift given by God to have us, uh, to give us faith so that we can see the almighty, powerful God and bow our knees to him. When Jesus began his teaching and preaching, the people were wondering if he would remain faithful to the teaching of the law. They hear it right here. Don't change one jot or tittle. We do not have time to get into law and grace and all of those various things that are there, the challenges that they put out to Jesus. But when Jesus says the law and the prophets, this is clearly the Old Testament. It is not the rabbinical understanding 
of the Old Testament. This morning at Elder's Prayer Time, uh, Joe Zakevich, who's uh, the Hebrew teacher over here, was asked to bring in the Torah, or I should say the notes on the Torah. Now, you think your Bible is big? This thing is about this big, and it's about this thick, and, and I mean, it was like 20 pounds. Yeah. But that's just the Old Testament first five books of the Bible, <laughs> that the commentary is on that and what you're supposed to do. When Jesus says along the prophets, this is clearly the Old Testament, not the rabbinical understanding, here in verse 18, for truly I say to you, until the heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall fall until all is accomplished. By the way, just a side note here, heaven and earth is simply pointing to the creation, not the heavens of heavens, it's just to the creation. The Greek word here for pass or pass away here means to become invalid. Therefore, not one letter will become invalid. They're all worth something. This clearly speaks to the inspiration, reliability, and enduring authority of God's word. It's always there for us. It speaks to every issue of our life. It speaks to every issue that we ever run into with regards to relationships with others. Whatever has been in the law from the beginning will remain until all is accomplished. Jesus puts it in very clear and understandable language. And these Hebrews have to understand it. I mean, if they're listening to him, they have to understand it. He says, not the smallest letter. This is the iota of the Greek alphabet. Very small. For those on the mountainside, it would have been the Hebrew yod, which is frankly just an apostrophe. It's like, tum. You know, it's what you put on a, 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 as an apostrophe. It's that big. It's the smallest you could possibly have. And it means something in the Hebrew language. It's important. It's not going to pass away. Or stroke, it really means little horn. Okay? It's like, a, it's like having a, a little, put a little cap on the eye, you know, and it makes it into another letter, that kind of thing. These are the, said in another translation, jots and tittles of other translations. They're permanent. And there is heaven and earth in this passage. Down to the smallest detail. Down to the minutest detail. That's the law and the prophets. They are valid. Now, I am not speaking of, and I want to make sure we get this set this aside here, I am not speaking of the very dietary laws of the, the Jews and all of those kinds of things because, you know, Peter was told in, what is it, Acts 6, rise up, kill, and eat. So that means you can eat anything. You know, you can go out there and get any animal you want. You can eat it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about the pigs, this and that. You can eat anything you want. That's not what it's speaking about. Not the smallest letter. Um, that's... And that's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Uh, of, and so Jesus did not come to abrogate the law, but to fulfill. In the Gospels, we find Jesus always affirming the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, folks, 
We're in um, Matthew chapter 5, but if you go back one chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus uses the Old Testament in his defense against the temptations of Satan. Satan gives him a temptation. Jesus answers with an Old Testament passage. Jesus answers with, with the Bible. So that's why I say to people when they're under temptation, think of a verse that you can use to remind yourself of this is the way you're supposed to live. This is what you're supposed to do. What you're supposed to have is a response to that. You know? And so um, Jesus did it. He's a, a great example for it. And so um, we see there. You see, the, to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, you must also accept the Word of God. When you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior you are also saying at the same time that you're going to live under his word. That's his word. That's the affirmation that you're giving there. When you, when you are seen in baptism here in the Sunday evenings, there's an affirmation that you're making that you're going to follow Jesus Christ and, and all that he has to say. You see, obedience is the confirmation that the word is from him and points to him at the same time. And obedience is what you're called to. Now, the third responsibility that we have here of the believer is to get it right. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, the responsibility of the believer for those who are on that mountain, for us, is to get it right. Uh, to make sure that you're asking questions if you don't understand something. Someone in this class, very astute, asked me, so if we have brackets in the, in the New Testament, does that mean that it's really the Bible and those kinds of things? Those are good questions to ask. Ask good questions. Those kinds of things are necessary for our growth and believers to get it right. I remember when I first got saved, I was living down in, uh, near the airport, West Chester, the uh, LAX, and somebody asked me to teach a Bible study down there. I mean, I'm saved Two months? And I, I just said, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I've never done this before. No, we, we, we think you can do it. And I mean, I was scared. What if I got it wrong? What if I got it wrong? And, and, but that's what they, they wanted. And they wanted me to do that. And I, I loved every minute of it because it forced me to study God's word. But you better get it right. You better get it right. He's calling for a commitment to do the will of God in every detail and make sure that we're teaching it correctly. This reminds me of James 2.10. Forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. I, I, I think I got to stop at this, not to end the message, but to stop at this point, I just pulled the bus over, the tour bus over. Aren't you happy for forgiveness? I, I mean, this is this is screaming. As believers, okay, true believers, 
We have the forgiveness of God. But you see, he just doesn't whitewash every single sin if we continue to do them. But we do have his forgiveness. He wants our perfection, but at the same time, he's willing to forgive us. But Jesus is calling every believer to live out or to practice the righteousness that the law is pointing them to, the righteousness that the law is directing them to. He doesn't want people to just, hey, it doesn't matter. You know what? God's going to forgive you. Go divorce her. I mean, I heard that. I, I, got, I got upset. I got upset. So how do we become great? Not like the Pharisees and the, and the, and the scribes get letting everybody see our righteousness. Not in, in doing things of this world. You want to be great? Well, there's a word that's used in the Greek called megas, and that means eternal greatness. We're not going to have greatness here, but we will have eternal greatness. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 8? I just want to take a, a little walk through this Romans passage here. Often I use this, folks, and hear this the right way, when I go to a hospital visit, I use this often because it, it brings to light some things that may be in that person's life. And maybe it's a, a hospital visit that they're about to die, and I want them to hear this gospel from here. But look at verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The question comes, and I stop there, are you in Christ Jesus? Are you truly in Christ Jesus? Not because you went to Grace Church. Not because you went to your local Baptist church or you went here or you did there. Or you, you were at home and you listened to, you know, John MacArthur and live stream or anything else. That's not, not why you're a Christian. It, like one fellow said, it was because I had a dream when I was four years old. Uh, and he's 20 years, not this church. And he thinks that's being a Christian. Well, that's not in my Bible. That's not in my Bible. Obedience is the confirmation that the word is from him and points to him and that is in your life. That's what we see. Anyway, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the Starting in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life is Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and of death. That which we had to do before you became a Christian, you didn't know any better. You didn't know how to do anything better. You continued to sin. As a matter of fact, you loved it. When you became a Christian, there should be something that happens all of a sudden. You know what? I, I still remember, and those in faith builders have heard me say this, the night I got saved in Montreal, Canada, I said, I don't have to do more. I was happy. I don't have to do that anymore. That's good. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. If you are fleshly, you're going to do the things of the world. You're going to participate in those kinds of things. And the Spirit is either being grieved there, or there is no Spirit. And you're thus, I go to Grace Church. I know John MacArthur. I, I listen to him. I, I've got his Bible. Somebody told me that recently. Well, I've got John MacArthur's Bible. I must be a Christian. Mm, having a Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Having different Bibles doesn't make you a Christian. Even having it in the Greek and the Hebrew doesn't make you a Christian. Verse 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When you live your life in the flesh it's always going to be abhorrent to God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, well, the body is dead because of sin. The Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Well, that's, that's going to hopefully lay on your heart, folks. The, um, that's the reason that we did that, is to let, it, uh, let your heart begin to wrestle with that. The Christian um, does not have to go far beyond, um, they find there uh, throughout the New Testament, that the writers, they are upholding and affirming all that Jesus had to say in his sermon. Jesus did not end the law, but held it, as the standard. And the New Testament writers tell us that over and over and over again. Okay, 520. Um, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Even the righteous standard of the scribes and the Pharisees was not enter the kingdom of heaven. No matter how good they were, they too needed a savior. The law was there to show how utterly impossible it was to keep the standard. The scribes and the Pharisees just made up other rules that were not in line with what God wants. The scribes and the Pharisees only had the external righteous behavior going and not the righteousness that emanates, again, from the heart. It's not something that's internal. The keeping of the law is spoken of here by Jesus is a call for us to walk in holiness. Not outward conformity, but inward conformity. It's not outward conformity, just inward. This is a very serious warning from Jesus. This is a very serious warning from Jesus himself. There's a real possibility that the self-righteous Christian is deluding himself. There is that possibility of of being, oh, I do this, I do this, I do this. I've jumped through these hoops, so I must be okay. That self-righteous Christian is deluding himself. The Pharisees and the scribes deluded themselves without much effort. They, They did not put any effort into deluding themselves, but that's what they did, in essence. They were unconscious 
hypocrites, as we see in Matthew chapter 28. That's what Jesus called them. They were hypocrites. You see, they were men, and uh, there are no women there, but in a sense, that can happen here. They are men and women of externals. How do I look on the outside? Jesus wants you to be changed on the inside. He doesn't want you to continue with letting the inside be sinful, sin-bent. He wants you to repent and come to him. Don't die in self-righteousness. Don't die thinking you're a Christian just because you go to a church or You know, like this couple that I was counseling with years ago. They went to Grace Community Church Sunday morning, went to my fellowship group. Okay, I'm going to admit it. They were under my teaching. And it came on Sunday evening. And I'm counseling with this couple in their marriage. And we're going on for a whole, I don't know, 40 or so sessions. Bill started pulling his hair out there up here, so pulling my hair out. And I, I mean, I'd even take the, uh, the man out for, lunch, uh, for breakfast. You know, come on, you know, just, you got to do this, you got to do that. And, and do you, you know what it was like me trying to push a train up a hill? You, you can't do that. And it was not changing. So I called an old friend of mine, Bob Smith, who's now in heaven. And he's the one who taught the counseling department down here. And I said, Bob, I got this problem. I can't seem to move these people. He said, Bill, do you know if they're saved? I said, Bob, they must be saved. Go to Grace Church. I didn't finish there. They go to my fellowship group, and they even come back on Sunday evening. So they really must be Christians. When he heard that, he started laughing. Just because they come back on Sunday evening, they must be Christians. I said, well, they got to be. He said, Bill, go back. And it was turned to Galatians chapter 5. And I went to the fruit of the Spirit. I said, in your marriage, do you have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Nine fruit. Do you know how many no's I got? Eighteen. Because each of them said, no, 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 no. Well, if you go a little bit before that in Galatians, it gives you the deeds of the flesh and the angers and, the, and all of the stuff that goes on there. And they had, yes, yes, yes. And I said, that passage says that if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say that to me, I'm down on my knees and I'm begging God to forgive me and repenting and whatever else I got to do. Do you know what he said to me? Bill, folks, Jesus And John 15 says, you will know them by their fruit. So I took them to John 15, and I said, that's where I got it from. I had my devotions in there this morning. (laughs) And so, and, and he just looks at me. Folks, we can become self deluded. We can delude ourselves into thinking, I must be a Christian because I do this, and I do that, and I do this, and I do that. That's scary. That people could be that close, hearing, okay, the word of God each and every week and not really knowing whether they know Jesus Christ or not. That's the warning that we have here. 
from Jesus. Nothing is going to pass away from the law. And he calls all of us to repentance each and every day. Am I deluded that you will repent today? Whether you tell me or not, it doesn't matter. Tell Jesus. Follow him. That's who you're supposed to be following. You are a follower of Jesus Christ, not just of an organization or a church or, or anything else. You're a follower of Jesus Christ, and make sure that you're an honest follower of Jesus Christ. That's what he calls you to. And so in looking at this passage here, Jesus has set down for us what the character of a Christian is, the action and the attitude of a Christian is, and now he's pointing out the sincerity of a Christian, the responsibility of a Christian. And so I pray that all of us would walk in holiness we would be doing away with our sin and not delude ourselves in any way. Let's pray. Father, God, I pray that you, Lord, would continue to cleanse our hearts. Our hearts that are so clouded, so filthy with sin, so deluded in the sense of um, not reaching out for the right kind of thing. Lord God, I, I love these people. I know you do, Lord, certainly much better than I do. I pray, Lord, that they would see their um, walk with you, their responsibility toward you, and that, Lord, when they came to know you, they said in their heart that they would pick up their cross daily and go follow you, that they would deny themselves and follow you. I pray, Lord, that we are all followers of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, for our pastor today as he brings a message to us as well. May our hearts continue to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Amen.